Welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. Today I speak with Berlin-based musician Andre Baum. Enjoy. snowy day of the year it snows there apparently yeah i mean it's been uh i think it's been less snow in the last years but uh yeah well, that little, sounds beautiful we get a little sprinkle you yeah. like snow what's your relationship to snow i love snow i was just thinking about it today i love how it frosts the air it makes the mind clear it blankets things it makes things uh yeah a little bit you like it like in a dirty city like new york yeah i mean there's that i mean there's so many great sort of metaphors that snow bring up but yeah blanketing a city and this beautiful powder and then you have about what like four hours before it turns into gray slush so it's really like a a lesson in the temporariness of everything so you live in Um, berlin I live in Berlin. Yeah. How long has that been again? Nine years. Nine years. What spurred that move? I'm, I don't recall. Uh, I was in New York. I graduated college. I had gone back to live in Nepal for a while, teaching, living in a school, um, which was amazing and just kind of a, nice to be in a place where it wasn't so much about me creating all the time. Um, and I got back to New York and went completely 180, uh, into producing music and artists and events. And, and I, and I didn't really want to be in New York, um, actually. And then I got a call from a friend of the family, this artist who, um, she said, yeah, you should come to Berlin. It'd be good for you for a little bit. supposed to be a summer. And then I just thought, well, this is better than being in New York for now. So yeah. Stuck it out. What were you making before you mentioned a 180 into music? Were you making visual art? Well, no, it was more of a 180 from like being in a situation of teaching and sort mm. of service. And um, I mean, I was always making music and there's always an intersection of visual art, music, um, and writing. And, uh, and, but yeah, it just had a different tone when I was living at the school with kids. It was like, it wasn't really about what I wanted to do. It was more like what the kids would respond to or what they were interested in. You know, Oh, you want a little poetry today? Oh, you haven't played this ukulele before. Here you go. You know? So it was very dynamic. Um, it was a nice, uh, respite from being in my own mind all the time. Um, yeah, the self is quite limiting in the end. (laughs) Yeah. In the end. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, so, in a way, Berlin was sort of like, uh, I don't know, it's its sort of a full circle for me right now, actually, because it's, it's definitely been, let's say, a decade of hard work in music and, and just, yeah, I don't know, letting go, I guess, on some level, while also, is that funny dichotomy of like, 
letting go what you want the most, <laughs> you know, um, sure. for things to sort of happen organically and naturally. And yeah, reminds me actually of that time in the school. Um, yeah. So I don't know a ton about Berlin, but do people say shit to you like, oh, you moved here right when it was on the decline or it used to be cool? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and what do you think they're really talking about? And do you think it's valid and true? I mean, there are a few things that come to mind. One is it's the highest growing property market, I think, in the world still. So there's an immense wow. amount of development happening really quickly. A lot of external investors and businesses coming in that really have nothing to do with Berlin and even maybe Germany. Um, also, Berlin is like a essentially an anarchist city. You know, I mean, it was... I mean, I have no memory of these, you know, events and things that people tell me, but, you know, you just roll up and squat in a place, you know, and take it over. And now you have these people are now landlords for buildings that they essentially just squatted. Um, rent used to be, I mean, it's still kind of cheap relative to New York or whatever, but, uh, I mean, rent used to be like 50 bucks or something, a hundred bucks, you know? Jesus. So... You know, you'd also have like the toilets on the street or, or, you know, I don't know. I mean, these are things, again, that are not from my own personal experience, but I think anyone who had lived here before the wall, especially, and then through the 90s and early 2000s, um, also musically speaking, I think a lot of the electronic music that became such a center point of Berlin now was kind of in its early stages of forming. And uh, there's an amazing story that a friend of mine, Adam Collins, was telling me about... Um, post 9-11 not only did it shut down both the spirit and the actual clubbing of new york and killed vinyls coming out of long island um because they were just seen as these black masses on x-rays um but it caused a lot of these new york djs and producers uh people that had moved to new york for that scene to move to berlin and which kind of jump-started the whole early 2000s minimal techno and um all these funny sort of cause and effects uh but anyway that was apparently the heyday of berlin for that so were you interested in the same music before moving to berlin um loosely i mean to be honest my reference point for like what was great music were sort of you know bob dylan and and uh you know, Jay-Z and Moby and, you know, these sort of names we all probably know. Um, and I wasn't, I had, I had dabbled in house and techno when I was younger and I would go to find dollar records and spin some things for teen parties and stuff. It was, uh, but it was very sort of loose interest. But then I found when I was 12 through a music teacher at my school, this program reason to start making electronic music. And then I started realizing, Oh, that's like a, you know, drum and bass feel. That's uh, that's more hard techno. That's more. And it's all these things were labeled that way, but I didn't really know who was making what. So when I got here, to be honest, most of the people that, you know, me and my friends would be now considering to be heroes or icons. I had no idea who they were. Um, so in many ways, Berlin, was a really humbling experience to move here musically. Also realizing that like everybody and their mother were like amazing producers and sonic scientists, you know, 
so I was like, okay, you know, I know I can write a song and sing and play piano and sample and produce, but I don't really know how to use an EQ or a compressor or how to mix music. So that was sort of part of the process of learning not only uh, what was going on and what my tastes were in that kind of music, um, but also how to make it uh, confidently, you know, and, and actually, yeah, you know, so you've here. Been, yeah, you've been interested in this type of music for a long time, it sounds like. Yeah, it kind of, it came up, I mean, to be honest, I moved here thinking I was going to make a record that was a bit more in the gorillas world, you know, kind of mm-hmm. oriented, um, indie pop, essentially indie electronic music. And then it slowly, the whole club world ate me and spit me out in a creative way. And I, to be honest, a few years just sort of tried making a lot of things that I don't think really had much to do with my authentic voice. Hmm. Um, which I think is a necessary process of being an artist, um, losing and finding and losing and finding. And then finally being like, okay, I'm tired of this. Like, this is really what I want to say, which is sort of what I feel like at the moment, actually. And that um, manifested in the people, people record. Well, and this, also you have a different thing going on, right? Yeah. There were a few things this year. I mean, um, couple years in the making but yeah i released this people people record with my music partner gonzalo gulp uh it's his dj name and that's a collaborative thing that's you know sort of referencing minimal techno and electronic club music but also massive attack and and hip-hop from new york and um a little bit post-punk and so it was sort of all wrapped up in into something that um we both loved but we weren't necessarily hearing around us and then i released the solo record as beyondre which was actually to tie the story together was the record i wanted to make when i first moved to berlin after doing an ep called beyondre is born in new york and uh anyway you know hundreds of songs later and now whatever that's been eight nine years um it's it's out it's called berlin blue and uh it really has nothing to do i think with what i thought originally sonically but in theory that's sort of my my little bookend from 2014 till now is this an alter ego yeah it's uh i realized like there are a lot of ways to approach choosing names or using your own name and I think because I've always loved film and cinema. That was essentially what I wanted to study and did study media studies, which became filmmaking, which became studio art through media. Um, And the idea of becoming a character in a role as a way to best express something authentically is really interesting to me because I don't know about other people, but sometimes I find that my own uh, attachment to my own name and my own history and, and, you know, however many millions of times someone has called you by your name is, is like so wrapped up in sometimes wrapped up in creating, whereas sometimes creating a character and falling into this character is, is really freeing. Yeah. It's interesting. I'll hear this often from musicians and never from artists. So there must be something about that performative immediacy that yeah, I was, you need you need that wall for. I was thinking about that the other day because it's like 
I'm kind of delineating at the moment, um, both in terms of like my time and energy, but also in terms of like kind of delineating in my mind. So I, I get, uh, I don't know. It's like having a bit of a dinner party with all these different selves and, and they can't be too close, you know, they need to be sort of a respectable distance on some level. So, but I was thinking that, you know, me, Andre Baum is like, if I wrote something or published a writing or, or did a video installation, I would say, obviously that's just me making things. Um, and then, and even now I'm working on a record that's, that's more like, okay, Andre Baum, the songwriter sitting and at a piano and writing songs. But then, yeah, there are these spaces of exploration that feel like it's not really about me necessarily, or me even, I mean, I like what Laurie Anderson said about, um, uh, advice to young artists where, being creative doesn't necessarily mean you're expressing anything about yourself. You could just be expressing some curiosity about something else. And she says, you know, like, you know, we're sitting here and I'm listening to the birds and I'm wondering what could I play that would turn them on, you know? And I think especially in our, you know, very capitalist individualist, you know, YouTube, Instagram centered world, it's like, uh, I don't know. That was sort of a revelation for me, actually. I mean, maybe it seems sort of obvious, sure. but um, no, no, it does. I don't think it does in this culture. I mean, I would throw literalist on top of that because there's this kind of, if you create it, you advocate it mentality, or if you write a story with something containing something, you're like politically advocating for it. Right. And that's, that's the ultra stamp of, I don't know what you would call it. Um, just very restrictive way of thinking about art making mm-hmm. where it's more, it's more like a psychological factory where you put these ingredients in and these opinions. And then it, at the end you get this art. Uh, I think that this kind of industrial way of thinking about it is, is kind of a problem. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of dancing with all these things for myself. Cause you know, of course I'm trying to be honest with myself. Like for sure, there's a lot of that influence in, me as a person, I mean, whatever, being raised in Manhattan and, you know, having artistic and, and poetic parents, but still being in a media and excuse me, in a culture that's like, um, yeah, it kind of warps the creative practice into product, especially now. So I like playing with the idea of product and creating a package of something in a self-contained world and, you know, even how that tickles the brain for someone to, you know, be excited by it or something. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, I think maybe the the hardest, the most essential thing is to remain playful and curious without, um, you know, an agenda, I guess. Yeah, I also think you have to rid yourself of caring about one's reputation. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I think Burroughs has a quote that says the exact opposite, but then again, he fucked little boys. I didn't seem to <laughs> mind too much. But uh, I think he was saying like the most important thing to do is maintain your reputation. I think that's nonsense, especially in this age where it's just like, I don't know, there's just, I, I think you would go insane if you really, really were trying to like control your reputation on the internet. I mean, it's it's like twofold. So on one hand, I've been also thinking about this word shame, Right. Like uh-huh. shame is so much in, you know, sort of a puritanical influence in our culture in general. Like if you're 
if you're exposed, I mean, to be like under 12 years old these days must be insane. I can't even begin to imagine what that's like, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the embrace of, of shamelessness, you know, not to say I'm going to go, you know, kissing naked in front of people in the park, but like, you know, there's a sense of, um, being free of one's own attachment, you know, my attachment to who I am and, and what I have to make, which is, you know, it's a process, I think, of just reminding oneself of what's really underneath all that. Um, yeah, I do want to get back to you. It's very important because it's unique and we've talked about it. Both of your parents are in the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always wondered about that dichotomy because oftentimes you'll talk to at least like suburban artists and their act of art making can sometimes be an act of rebellion against their environment and their parents. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's the case. Like I've, I know people with art parents and it seems different. There's kind of this understanding of where the child's trying to go or the teenager. Sometimes there's support, but at the very least there's like, you're in the same world in some sense. Does that sound accurate? Yeah. I mean, especially as I got older and more sort of professional about it or, or not so, you know, whatever, a hundred new ideas every day kind of thing. I think they got much more comfortable and um, supportive, but they've always been basically supportive um, because they're, I mean, they're, they're both on the, you know, they're, they've been on the business side of things, but they're also both pretty extraordinary artists, you know, and, um, and even now, for instance, my mother is is painting again and doing these ex- extraordinary, like large abstract oil paintings. And we have conversations about that process and the ideas behind it and the idea of destruction and power, power structures. And then now I'm starting to make some music uh, for her paintings. We did a piece actually a few years ago. Um, and so that kind of dialogue, it's, is, yeah, I mean, it's been amazing, you know, and my dad's a, basically a poet and just a crazy old New Yorker and, um, yeah. And also a window to a world that doesn't really exist anymore. So yeah, I would say, of course, it's been sort of essential to my process, I guess. Um, but you know, there's, there's always going to be something to resist or rebel against. Um, and and because, you know, as supportive as parents can be, there's always going to be some, maybe even going to the opposite side of, uh, you know, basically trying to find my own voice, you know, in the sea of people that have extraordinary voices, you know, something like that. Yeah, I just remember being taken aback by how good the art was that your father was selling at that one Javits Center event. Oh, the print fair. And just to be like around that kind of work when you're young, that's very interesting to me. Well, what's sweet was also, it was not only the experience of being around that work, but also knowing that his way, you know, he's, he's older than, than, I mean, he's, yeah, he wouldn't want me to say his age, but he's older. Um, so he, he was an art dealer in a time when it didn't mean mega bucks, you know, maybe it's like, a th- it still is maybe with what he said, you know, like a thousand bucks for something because you want to like start a collection of prints or 500 bucks, you know, and you'd give the money to the artist first before you got it. You know, it was just a very different environment than what people know yeah. to be as like the art world now. 
Um, so is that like deep in the bloodline? Is there artists no. all the way down, or is, or is that him? No, he just mom? he no no he he just popped out uh, basically of college and loved surrealism and just was kind of uh, yeah full speed ahead to. I mean, he wanted to be a writer. He he is a writer. You know, he's a poet and a writer. Um, but you know, life circumstances where he needed to make money, and early on, he was in New York and um, you know followed the thing that was his passion. Otherwise, and just little by little, yeah, created this business for himself. Um, which, but again, like I think that same scenario now would be almost impossible. Yeah. Um, especially in New York. So. It's so much about the time that it's from. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, anyway, it's not deep in the, in the bloodline. Like that was okay, basically yeah. where it just, started. Just curious. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about surrealism at this age? Uh, you mean like 1920s surrealism or the general idea of surrealism or? Uh, yeah, 1920s. Cause I feel like there's this, I still, find value in it but i probably found more value in it when i was like a teenager and there's kind of a trope of especially with teenage boys uh liking this work for whatever reason um <laughs> yeah and I, mean, I think that's often said to diminish it but there's something still very alluring about it to me for uh, sure i mean the yeah. nature of it is essentially like the big wide-eyed curiosity of the subconscious and also the revolutionary power of accessing that um and, you know, I think there are different angles to see what surrealism is or was. Um, but to me, so much of it was as one of the art shows that I saw a couple of years ago called Revolution by Night, you know, a revolution hmm. of the mind. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. it's essentially a very powerful space. Um, yeah, of course, I think the superficial reading of it is like, oh, it's crazy, like weirdo stuff that really has no reference to reality. But as my dad likes to say, uh, surrealism is is in between reality and fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's not fantasy, but it's not quite reality. Um, and yeah, of course, I relate to it. I mean, I'm named after Andre Breton, so I feel in some psychic way, yes, I'm like, yes. I have to be <laughs> sort of like... Uh, karmically linked to it but um yeah i would say of course it runs through almost everything i do whether i know it or not you know? yeah i mean i hear it in the music for sure mm. more like a subterranean thing i don't know if it i wouldn't say it's surreal per se um i think it's more like a way of um tr it's like a kind of oh man how do i say it like it kind of deconstructs the mind a little bit to engage in ideas like what surrealism posits. So I think having been around that my whole life and, you know, whatever you see a figure in a painting and it's like, yeah, but that figure has like a vase as an arm and like a cantaloupe on it's like, what am I looking at? You know, and sort of very quickly um, being told visually that you can, you can do that. You know, you can combine things that don't normally come together. You can, you know, hold up an egg and say, this is a fork. You know, what does that right, do right. to the mind? Um, and so I think naturally, yeah, having been around that for so long that the way I approach music and also film, I mean, the way that I am imagining what I want to be putting together for the music is, is very much like that. Actually. Um, it's like putting different influences together to create new narrative 
different sounds together to create new worlds. Um, some organic mixed with not organic, you know, voice being manipulated. But, you know, again, yeah, it's always like what the personal history is that, that guides you, I guess. And obviously surrealism is rooted in Europe. Do you think there's a big difference for you between making in Europe and making in New York? You know, I've been thinking probably too much about this for these years. And especially right now, um, I, I love Berlin for the freedom it allows freedom to fail because mm. it's, it's been a space. It's very international. There's a lot of people coming for different reasons and different influences that all meet. Um, it hasn't been very expensive to live here. So, and also people don't really care what you're doing for better or worse. So that's what gets me into the New York side where it's been like an island of Berlin for me that I can come to and it's my base and it's my place to experiment and yeah, do things that I wouldn't necessarily have the time or space or money to do in New York. That being said, being a New Yorker, the moment I get into New York, I'm just like walking down the street the way I would normally walk in New York and I feel the energy of it and ideas come differently and melodies are different. You know, I just feel something about it that really uh, I miss actually at this point in Berlin. Can you elaborate on people not caring what you do? I mean, the joke is that like, you know, there are a few things they tell you when you get here. First one is, you know, you miss the best Berlin. And the second thing is don't ask people what they do. And, you know, coming from New York, I mean, not that I'm like, uh, you know, entrepreneur shaking hands every day, but it's like, um, my, yeah, my idea was like, well, what do you mean? Like, of course I want to know what people do, but for people here, it's like, it's essentially kind of a capitalist question. It's like, how do I define you? How do I put you in a box based on the work that you do? So if you do ask that question, a lot of people will be like, uh, you mean for money or like in general? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, the joke is that you know, there are people that I've known for years through the club scene or through music or through art that I didn't, we didn't really know necessarily what we did you know, we'd have conversations about other things. We really care about each other. And we don't necessarily hang out much outside of a certain um, time frame or, or party or something. But then you realize actually you're completely aligned in what you do musically or whatever. And then you end up making a record together, you know, but it could take three years, you know, which <laughs> is, which is nice. Cause it's also like, do you actually want to hang out with this person you know do you actually trust this person do you do you feel open with this person do you feel safe um in which case you know if you happen to align then in what you do for work or creativity is uh is something really special hmm. yeah i could imagine that being frustrating because i like to work and i like to work with people but i also could understand the release that comes with that uh, where people aren't a means to an end um, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, again, always oscillating here. Um, yeah. because on the other hand, I do like things to happen, you know, quickly <laughs> if I have an idea, like it's like strike while the iron's hot. Whereas here it can be kind of like, yeah, iron's hot. It'll be hot for a while. It's cool. Like, you know, we can always reheat it, you know, it's like, and I don't, I don't really want to lose yeah. that energy, that potential energy. So 
can be a little frustrating too sometimes, you know. But again, there's like a grass is always greener thing. Because then in New York, it can be really like, okay, wait a minute, we're like really rushing this, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, that actually brings me to people. People, how long did the album take, and what did that release process look like? Well, so you know, it's a really beautiful for me story because it was basically why I ended up staying in Berlin. I think it was 2016. I was on a dance floor, early morning, uh, turned to my left and started a conversation with Gonzalo. And we kind of just spoke in band names. It was like uh, Psychic TV. Oh, like J.J. Kale. Oh, J.J. Kale. You know, and it was like within five or six names, we realized that we should just go make music. So we left. We went back. His wife was at home being like, oh, who's this dude? And um, we made... I think two or three of the songs that were on our first EP. And then, yeah, over the last years, we've just been exploring and, you know, did a few other little, like a remix here and worked on some other stuff together, but basically getting all these songs together, um, which is like part one. And then part two is figuring out really like what you want to do, do with them or, or who wants to put it out or whatever. And, uh, and also for me, every album that, I mean, to me, an album is a film, so it's it has a concept, it has a narrative. You know, it's hard for me to imagine making a record that's just like a bunch of songs. Um, so the album we put together, it's called Out of Our Hands, which sort of in, references the, the fatefulness of our meeting and also just like, here it is, it's very organic, it's handmade. And also a lot of this is um, by chance, you know, the sort of magic space of letting go which he taught me a lot, actually, to be honest. Like, I think when we first met, I was, I was still very much the New Yorker side of like, okay, let's make this perfect. You know, like, let's re let's re-record that take 10 times mm -hmm. and make sure that one of them is the best. And then he was like, no, we're just going to record this once and, and make it good. And we move on. <laughs> and remind me, or, where is he from? He's from Buenos Aires. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm actually about to go down there for the first time to play some shows with uh, nice. with him and also alone. Yeah, the so story continues. Is he the person you've collaborated with most in life at this point? In life? Uh, wow. Probably. Yeah. Like I'm, ta I'm talking pretty dry here, like hours, man hours. Is, is that the... You think that's yeah. the most you've been with some? And what do you... I mean, I think collaboration is very important. And I also don't think it happens naturally in school because you're being graded and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Everyone's kind of on their own rail in school. And then because, like, I have my friend Neve that I've worked with a lot. And I think it's very valuable to growing and understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are to be with someone at your level or above you, like yeah. one rung. And then, and then realizing, like, oh, okay, so... I'm not, that's not my strength. And this is, you know, what I can bring to the table. It's kind of like service, you know, like if someone already has something, you don't need to give him that. And, yeah, but you can provide something with, new. It's a lot about listening. I mean, which, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the things that I could imagine are, are forever going to be part of my, my growing and learning in life is like how to be more patient and how to listen better and, how to show up for someone else when maybe it's not exactly how you'd imagine it should go, 
Um, and so what's the dynamic between what do you both bring to it? Is someone more orderly, someone more loose? Yeah. I mean, we're kind of a perfect yin yang, which is, you know, it's funny because the whole idea of people, people for me originally back even in college was like this sort of, you know, organic shifting of people involved to create one giant organism. And maybe you don't even know who's involved kind of thing, but it became something that felt maybe more appropriate um, in the core of it, which was like two people bringing maybe some opposite things to find balance. And so I'm very orderly and very like everything is color coded for me. You know, bass is always blue. Kick is always red, you know, root colors, percussions are always yellow and everything is titled and labeled. And, you know, at this point it's just been years of making sure that there's no, there's, there's not a lot of space between the idea and being able to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that has its cons, you know, that has its sort of uh, side of, of being maybe too precise or um, too rigid. And so Gonzalo often brought a lot of like looseness and, and joy and, and ease in the process. Um, and then musically, I mean, he's, he's a, an amazing DJ. And so his, his contributions of like sampling and drums and percussion, um, and just general production mindset was fantastic. And, and for me, I'm, I'm really melody based and, um, and I think over the time, like probably we've rubbed off on each other. So he's, you know, I've, I feel like maybe he's gotten more melodic too, or, and I've gotten more groovy and, you know, these things sort of started to blend together. I mean, I would say everything is 50, 50, of course, between us. Nice. Yeah. It's definitely groovy. I was just listening to it. Um, do you imagine you'll make another People People album? Yeah, we're almost done. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, we have... Um, I mean, that's also the fun of it, is like on one hand to give a proper space for one release and promote it and play it and, and figure out what to do with it, while at the same time, of course, you still have this, this whatever, constant creative flow that's coming out. And um, also it can take a year or more to release a record. So... Yeah, I think we have another LP, basically. We might split it up into a few. Plus, we're going to be playing our live set, which we're incorporating more equipment into and more sort of uh, live jamming. And um, at the moment, it's more dance floor oriented. But, you know, a lot of that record is not. So um, seeing it more for a stage than a booth kind of thing. And what is it like trying to put out stuff in Berlin and... and- you know, how do you adjust your expectations about, I don't know, how many eyes or listens or followers might be related to the album you just released? Like, is it a different set of expectations because it's Berlin? Oh, man. I mean, I'm still learning this. It's uh, honestly, I think it's also changing constantly, like really quickly, both digitally and physically. So Berlin, I would say, is I mean, there's a big international um, I don't know, a big growing underground of vinyl. And at the same time, it's getting more expensive to make, you know, plants are being rented out by whatever Taylor Swift and universal for tons of releases. So it takes months to get Mm. things made. Um, shipping can be a nightmare anyway. So it's, it's difficult to do something that used to really not be that difficult. 
And so as far as the vinyl side goes, I mean, a lot of people I know are, are making amazing records and have labels that they're all either distributing themselves or they have friends with distributions in Berlin um, and in Europe. And that goes international. To be honest, I don't, I don't know. I don't really know. I know some people are doing well. I know some people are doing it just as kind of a calling card to break even. Um, it's kind of a segue into then performing and getting gigs, which is really always, I guess, where the money is. Um, yeah, the question partially relates to the emotional experience of releasing something that you've worked years on. Right. And the expectations that come with that. And I'm just curious in that environment, what you're looking for to feel that you succeeded or failed. Right. I mean, I think the expectations depend on where you, what you think the music is for, which of course in the process of making it, I don't know that that really should be a thought, but naturally you figure out pretty quickly, like, yeah, we're not making, you know, for the floor techno for a DJ. We're making basically experimental pop music. So, you know, it, you can start to see these, these streams that go to different lakes, essentially, or different oceans of like, okay, this is for um, distribution for a smaller audience that are more connoisseurs or more audiophiles. Um, and then for me, you know, the, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is songwriting and, and pop oriented and, you know, getting more into kind of scoring film and, and placing songs and things like that. So yeah, the expectation or the the vision of who it's for is is really different. Um, there might be some overlap, but I've had to, I think, adjust my expectations as far as what success means. Um, you know, Gonzalo said to me, like, the main success is that we did it, <laughs> you know, that it's, we put it together, it's out, there's a label that one, you know, that puts it out. And it's... Um, yeah, I mean, and I agree with him, you know, as far as then the success is like, is that what you're doing for a living is kind of a, another question, I think. Um, and yeah, I don't, I mean, to be honest, like, I think there are things to learn from the process, but I don't really see how any of it could be a failure mm -hmm. depending on what you want, I guess. But, you know, there are things that I want in my career and in my work that I'm making to connect to people and to be able to, to ride that into a, um, definitely a, a bigger space than, you know, a 200 person club, let's say. Yeah. The reason I ask is I, you know, I think it's an important question for artists often the, cause it's such an intangible process and it's such a personal one, mm -hmm. um, that I think there's like this kaleidoscopic amount of metrics going on. And sometimes being honest about it can be hard. Like I used to experience with the more abstract comics I was making. I, I would look back and I could see the failures more clearly, actually. Like, mm -hmm. oh, that panel doesn't clearly communicate what I'm trying to obfuscate, if that makes sense. Right. Like I, I could have more, I could have sharpened that mysterious component. And then I started to grapple with, okay, so I used to have the similar thing. It's like break even point, you know, like I just want to keep making the books. Um, but then at some point, maybe because life circumstances changed, I became more dissatisfied with that metric. Um, but I still haven't really gotten to that answer. You know, 
sometimes it's easy to have goals like let's say ridiculous like you want to write songs with taylor swift right mm-hmm. and you can and you can barrel down that tunnel and end up completely unhappy with you know the whole process that got you there sure i mean wow this this whole thing is such a such a multifaceted diamond if you want to call it that but it's like I mean, happiness is a whole other matter, let's say, because of course sure, sure. I shouldn't be uh, looking for any of this really to give me happiness. Um, That's fair. Yep. But, uh, but I think also it's a funny time now where, um, I mean, personally I'm, I'm doing different things that all, I think because I'm doing, making different things and for different not only music, but also um, visual work and film work and writing and, and kind of, they all take their time. So things go maybe a little slower for me. So I've also adjusted for that. Like, I think I'm a more of a slow grow person than like a, you know, jumping out, you know, ready for, mm-hmm. um, for it all to happen. So yeah, I mean, I think the, the process is the success, honestly, on some level. Um, is like if it is processing, if it is going, then that's fantastic. You know, from a more dry metric, do you? Because there's pros and cons to this. Do you wish that you could sustain your like living expenses from your creative output, or do you try to separate those things out? I mean, essentially, I have been doing that. Um, yeah. You know, I've had my freelance stuff and my odd jobs, and whatever. But you know, at the moment, yeah, I'm kind of in a in a place of it being more and more of that so um do you like that i do i mean this comes back to the berlin versus new york thing i kind of like the push i like the Mm -hmm. i like this idea of um somehow knowing that it's like one in a million or whatever for this to happen and work and be consistent also that it requires um this is about this diamond thing again it's like there are different angles to approach this stuff so I'm kind of approaching it both as an artist, but also as a producer, but also as a, um, you know, with an event mind or an art installation mind or a, you know, a written work mind or a collaborative mind where it's like, oh, well, maybe actually this is more of a creative advisory role in one project. You know? And so there are all these things that excite me, actually, um, which I think ultimately nowadays you can create as one big sort of mind map career, yeah. um, which I think must have been almost impossible to do, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Of course. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that being said, of course, like I, I would love to be collaborating with my, with my heroes, you know, and I can visualize it and I can, you know, like. Well, it sounds like you've already done that in some ways, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not to say that there's like a, there's no Holy grail. Right. I mean, that's the, yeah. so much of collaboration has happened and I think should happen very um, organically, very seamlessly. You know, somebody says, oh, you should meet this person. And then you really hit it off. Fantastic. Um, you know, that's really the, the success for me is that the that life feels connected. I mean, that's really all it's about, right? It's like, why am I doing any of this? Is because I'm on one hand trying to connect to myself through the things that I'm doing that makes me feel more alive and more healthy and more um, inspired. And then also, because I want to connect with people. And, um, yeah, I mean, collaboration is a huge part of that. So with the, um, release of out of our hands, 
Mm-hmm. How would you describe that to someone who hadn't listened to it? It's a, uh, <laughs> it's a cinematic experience through a little bit of club and a little, little bit of, wow, how do I describe this? It's very difficult, but this is the elevator pitch part. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's always tough. It's like a synth wave down tempo trip hop electronic record. And, and as you can tell the difficulty in trying to describe it, because I'm thinking about all the things in it also lends it to this idea of like, maybe it's hard to sell, but if you actually listen through it, then that all makes sense. Right. Yeah. By definition, things that are easily described are easier to sell, I think. Well, that was kind of what I was going to say about your other question too, is like, there's, there's a lot of incredible music being made, which is more and more probably getting discovered through algorithm or through the internet. But I'm always amazed by really how much undiscovered stuff there is, you know, and people are really digging and going through Bandcamp or going through, you know, record stores and finding things, you know, you realize that the difference between great music being recognized as great by, you know, thousands or millions of people versus being hit in a way and listened to like by 50 people is essentially some combination of luck, uh, good PR, you know, one good video or campaign. I mean, who knows? Like there's so many sort of, I mean, I think the old idea was like, oh, if you're great, it's just, it'll just work, you know? And the reality is like, there's so much talent. There's so many people that are really creating. And now you can create, I mean, you know, I'm making tracks on my phone, you know? I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, I think it was Steve Lacey who produced a bunch of Kendrick tracks on his iPhone. I mean, you know, the, your imagination is your only limit at this point. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, I'll find artists who are dead or visual artists and they're amazing and they're irrelevant and they're barely on the internet. Sometimes they're just on the edges. Um, so I, I'll buy a book or something just to like, cause they might just disappear and, I try to remember that with humility. You can make very good work and end up there. It's just the way of life. That's the thing. I mean, there's a technical side to this, and I do reach out to people that know more about this than I do. And frankly, I don't really have the time at the moment to be like studying metrics and everything. But like, um, yeah, I mean, there's a kind of, for me also, the process of, of not getting so hung up on it which again has, I think, created more opportunity or more joy or more connection. You know, I think it's very easy for me back to this, you know, New Yorker thing of like the hustle and the like, how do I like turn a profit or make this work or can I, you know, all these ideas that are really have nothing to do with the artistic process. That being said, if you're an amazing artist, but you don't know how to talk to people and you don't know how to whatever, like think about, you know, how to present something in a way that people can actually consume and not be confused, then yeah, you're kind of flailing. You're at, the, you're at the behest of other forces, I find. Right, exactly. I mean, that's a good way to put that. It's like if you can actually write your own narrative around the work, then you're not going to be as in a position to be controlled or to be manipulated or to be misunderstood. I mean, that's the main thing, I think, mainly True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. clear communication. Yeah, like if uh, if you ever become even remotely relevant, a narrative will be 
applied to you. So yeah, definitely (laughs) trying to construct it before is certainly a good strategy. It's not always easy because by definition, you have to start hemming yourself in. Uh, You have to start understanding what sides of yourself in the future will need to flourish. Uh, And it's, it's a kind of a process of maturation, I think, at least how I understand maturation, where you're accepting the restrictions or constraints of the what you're presenting to the world i mean also that everyone's gonna have their own take no matter what i mean i know that there's i remember this moment where i was renting this place on lower east side before i moved to berlin and uh, my friend and i scott found star wars uh the first what episode four in the garbage a dvd and so we brought it up and we would kind of religiously watch it but with commentary on we'd like get mm-hmm. stoned and watch this and then make music and first of all watching star wars with commentary is extraordinary i mean watching any great movie with commentary is pretty amazing um and anyway point being i was listening to all this commentary and you'd hear also harrison ford talking and and in this stoned moment, I was like, oh, my God, what it must be like to be Harrison Ford, Han Solo. You can never not be Han Solo or Indiana Jones the rest of your life. You know, like this entire world is around. You go, oh, what's up, Han? You know, so, and it's like, yeah, you're in such a funny, privileged trap. And so it really struck me. It really freaked me out, actually, because I think at that point I was kind of like, yeah, like, you know, I could like whatever, be playing to millions of people and be on billboards, whatever. And then part of me was like, well, who's saying that? You know, like, what is that urge? Where is that coming from? And to just sit with it and not engage it too deeply or, you know, be wary of, of the, of the fame voice. Um, Cause also that sounds like a nightmare, you know, on some level. I think, um, yeah, I think it is for many people. Um, and I will say but, to hmm. counter what I just said, I don't think Star Wars could ever be made and not be as relevant as it is. I don't know why I feel that way about Star Wars, but there's something very magical about that film. You know what? I just watched um, the other night again, which is. The right before Star Wars with George Lucas, THX, was it 118? Yeah, yeah. 1138, which, yeah. 1138, right? Which yeah. is extraordinary because that was like a college film. And yeah. the, the tastefulness of it, the aesthetic, the sound design, but also a lot of these, these little motifs and, and dialogues even and camera things, they all got translated into Star Wars, which was really inspiring because it was also like made me remember that the best things take not only time, but like honing, honing the craft, honing the idea. And, and I'm noticing that also in just like, there are songs I'm about to perform on Friday, piano and voice in Berlin, which I've never done actually here for 10 years, which is kind of insane because it's the thing I've been doing the longest. Um, and the thing that I probably most want to do. Um, and there are songs there that I have been kind of reworking since college or high school almost, you know, cause there's some, something in it, some nugget that feels like, okay, this is beyond me and this is timeless. And this is, this is just to be playful and curious and to come back to your thing about Star Wars. I think that's what makes it so magical is this like, it's this 
it just gives me so much sense of like curiosity, you know, there's like a curiosity about these worlds and these creatures and everything's really alive and organic. I mean, the commentary, Ben Burt, who did the, the, the sound design for it, he's talking about how like they had this rule that nothing would be strictly electronic. So even like R2D2 is a mix of, I think the ARP 2600 um, with like human like (laughs) pitched down and pitched up and you know just just that beauty you know it's a beauty of like um mixing things that again shouldn't be mixed together or when you do create something greater than some of the parts but what makes that so much for you though what do you mean star wars being such a Oh my God. It was like so important to me. And then I kind of love the arc of it just being like drained of all of its life force by Disney. But, um, (laughs) cause I think there's some, something beautiful about that. It actually sent me down this very interesting rabbit hole of like, why is it hard to make a trilogy or anything beyond it without great integrity? You know, the matrix two and three are horrible films. Um, and and the dynamic of success is what interested me. Like Lucas said, if he ever had enough money, he would go back to making films like THX, and he never did. Uh, and the Wachowskis also just openly admitted, basically, that like two and three were money grabs. And there's something to be learned about that. You know, like I don't think one should be afraid of success because hopefully we can all rise to its challenges and and be better. Um, but there is something very interesting about, like, I haven't watched all the Indiana Joneses, but, yeah, it's really hard to follow up success with authentic, genuine expression. Even if it's the second Strokes album, which I think is good, but it's effectively the first album again. And then the third album is, like, some weird spinoff where it feels like they overreact and, like, don't want to be judged in any way, which I still like because I like the Strokes, but... Uh, it's very interesting for me to just observe how bands and artists handle eyes on them and money, et cetera. Totally. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not at that place in my life. I'm, I'm kind of curious to be though, you know, I'm curious what it's like to navigate that. Cause I think part of it is, you know, I've tried in, in my way through my life to, to always kind of um, break my own sense of, whatever my own sense of trying to be something while also still having the hunger that propels me to do the things I do. So, you know, I think I'm trying to think what a good example would be of, of people that did follow up records that were just like, Oh, you like that? Let me show you how much of it, like not giving a shit. I am. Um, I've always thought I'm, Radiohead is incredible at sustaining. Yeah. That's a great example. I mean, cause, but you also get that energy of just like, they, somehow I get this bunker feeling like they're in their bunker, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of disconnected from the world doing their stuff. And they come out because they have to once in a while, you know, but basically they're doing what they want to do. And uh, was I also just thinking, Oh, MGMT, you know, management. That's like a funny story of how they're big, big pop kind of slightly inside jokey uh, first record that were like, turned into these iconic, you know, uh, hipster theme songs, essentially, whatever people were calling it. And then followed up with like a bizarre prog rock record, which I love. I mean, that record's amazing. And it was essentially like, okay, we're on Columbia records and we really don't care, you know? (laughs) Um, 
and essentially made very increasingly bizarre records. Um, and then came back and made something also new and sort of wonderful for them. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of good examples. I mean, obviously also if we go back to like jazz people or like, I don't know. I mean, how many amazing records did Miles Davis make, you know? I admit I'm not terribly informed about jazz. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. That, I'm, I'm waiting. Till on I'm that waiting. note, I'm going to shout out WBGO, which is my uh, your local jazz station that I always listen to the moment I get back to New York, but also listen to in Berlin when I'm feeling homesick. Interesting. Love it. It's great. I can. I can. Surely, I can access that from Northern New Jersey. Yeah, it's in. It's in uh, Newark. It's, oh, okay. Uh, it's eighty-eight point three. Right WBGO. <laughs> you know, I, I would be remiss not to mention the visual language of the album, which, you know, I'm, if you can explain it without being flattering to me, but <laughs> why, why do you think I was, my language, visual language worked for this album? Well, so I uh, forget how exactly, I think when we, when you and I first met was also when we were first starting to, get this record together, but also kind of imagine what the visual component is that matches. And we were, and the sound, and we were playing with, with different logo ideas and word plays and visual words. And it just really kind of wasn't landing. And then when I saw your stuff, I was like, okay, like you get it. And the, it is, it's like a bit rough, but it's held together really well. It can be really sharp but also really like kind of hard to focus on. Uh, mm -hmm. There's something like playfully perverted, but in like not a trying to like shock you way more in like a very tasteful, like it kind of hinting at something under the surface. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that's always ideally the music um, that I make does that. And particularly for this record, it was like, okay, we know it's black and white. We just sort of felt it. It's like, it's a black and white record. It's a black and white film. Right. Um, it's a process of, for me, the narrative is the process of also like going through loss and heartbreak and, and digging in and then letting go and going through this catharsis and dark night of the soul. But then also there's kind of a techno track in there and then you're, off to the dance floor and then you know it's this process of uh self-discovery and letting go and there's actually i think yeah there's a track called let it go um so that's somehow just made sense with your visual style and then when you and i started talking about it it's like so easy also to talk with you about um like underlying principles of things and so in this case the underlying principle of people people being this space and these and these and people or energies of of um caring about each other and finding sort of a give and take and a balance and and yet at the same time knowing that that can be really messy and like embracing the sort of rough edges of it all yeah um no, so sense. i actually think that helps describe the music uh even more finely than the elevator pitch in a weird way yeah, I mean, I do think that oblique approach is often what is easier to describe art with sometimes. Well, that's, I mean, to be honest, and when you asked me that question, I probably should have said, like, the it, how I would describe it is, you know, two opposites attracting and finding a way to become one, you know, mm. or whatever. I mean, labeling any music with genre these days just seems totally insane to me. But, um, 
yeah, I'm holding the record in my hand. I'm looking at it. You you uh, need to have one in yours soon. Oh yeah, we got to put it in the, the record store too. Oh yeah, great. But it's beautiful. Yeah. It's matte, which nice. also is perfect for it's what be you matte, did. Yeah, because yeah, you had this woodcut thing going on on the front, and um, it's beautiful. It's very great. beautiful. And, well, um, what else do we need to say? People need to listen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll be back in New York um, December, uh, last two weeks of December. So be nice to see you. And also, I mean, the thing is, every time I come back, I'm always kind of putting on a few different hats. And so sure. one hat is like, I'm going to go DJ on December 15th in a club. Then I'm also preparing with a friend of mine, a kind of, um, private dinner with music live created around the meal. Um, and then also coming in with a sort of sense of like film world and looking for people in New York that also might, that I might shoot something with. And yeah, it's just, um, you're busy despite trying not to be busy in some sense. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like the balance of like, okay, can I just be still (laughs) for a minute? Um, I think, I mean, I've come for me. It's like, I just can't be. And I don't mean that in like an ADHD way. I don't mean like I'm fidgeting like a squirrel. Um, But in respect to mental processes, it's just not like, I have to go into them to feel a sense of silence. I can't like, I can't go the other direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about this last night. Like there are times in my life that I've been so hungry for meditation and retreats. And, you know, I used to do month long retreats for years and it was just something that was, uh, yeah, I was just hungry. It was like needing vitamin C or something. Um, and, but of course that is just practice and practice you have to do all the time. So, um, I was thinking about how my practice became something else sort of related, but in a way, just the practice of like being present to things happening, whether you like what they are or not. Yeah. Um, also slowly has been helping me not be so fixated on all the things at once. Um, and also recently something that's come up is, is how extraordinary gratitude is. Oh yeah. I was going to say that sounds like what you're experiencing. Um, it's I mean, it's hard to talk about with, you know, without falling into every cliche or trope about it. But but that's why there exist those things about it. And I think sometimes artists have an aesthetic aversion to the ordinary and mundane or trope. And that's a dangerous thing because uh, very ordinary things like gratitude can change your whole orientation to reality. I mean, it's so not ordinary, though. That's the funny part is it's so... I mean, you know, I don't know about everybody else's upbringing and world and whatever, but like, at least, you know, New York has its fair share of cynicism and Berlin for sure. And so there's mm-hmm. a kind of modern, postmodern, post-postmodern, like kind of cynicism about the world and how fucked everything is. And, and I, you know, on some level, of course, you can always engage things like that because there's a lot of it, but there's also so much of what your own reality is your own perspective. And, and so I can acknowledge, you know, like horrific things that are happening 
and at the same time wake up and just be like, okay, I'm, I can only really be responsible for myself in at least in this one moment right now. So let me use that to remind myself, you know, wow, like this is, this is amazing that I have this bed and that like the electricity turns on and that like there are countless people around that are making this happen that I never see, you know, and that are just all contributing to being able to live comfortably. Like it's, it's amazing, you know? Um, and it's, and that's the funny thing. There's so many things that are taken as ordinary that are extraordinary, totally extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean like a Hallmark card, uh, kind of, or cafe gratitude. I don't know if you were aware of this place in California. No. Blew my fucking mind. I hate it. But it's it's like you had. I think you had to you had to say something you were grateful for to order like a like a latte or something. <laughs> I mean, and, it's sweet. I get it. I get what you mean. But it, you know, yeah. it's like better than them saying, "Tell me something you hate about me." <laughs> that's kind of that sounds like a cool business uh, from like a Philly or New York perspective. That would probably do very well. But there is a restaurant where they insult the people when you. I've order. heard of that. I've heard of that. Yeah, I think there's like this weird tightrope walk of the the kind of spiritual or cosmic truth that the world in some sense is perfect uh, mm-hmm. but that everyday life is obviously for many people and all and all people a flawed experience full of imperfect things and i don't really know how to deal with that per se but i know that gratitude is the first step in making any sort of progress within yourself or outside of yourself, I think. It's like the palate cleanser. I mean, in some way it's, um, I mean, this is my like Buddhist side coming out here, but essentially my understanding and my own experience, despite it not always being my experience, is that our root nature is peace and is whatever you might call happiness. And then we have all of these things that we've acquired and habits and hangups and traumas and and, and also justifications for, yes, of course I should feel this way because everything's totally messed up, you know, right now. Um, but like all of that is kind of like this layer cake on top. And so that's why I feel like gratitude, you know, and as my mom has been telling me, just, you know, like coming up with a couple things you're grateful for every morning, you know, it's like, it is transformative actually, you know, and then none of that other stuff is going anywhere. You know, it's not like, no, no, no. it's not like, uh, I think a lot of the time, especially within spiritual ideas, people take it as a sort of all or nothing, you know, and I, and I've definitely taken that even in my own practice of a kind of like, you're either, you know, totally at peace or you're a mess. And it's just not like that. You know, in fact, it's, it's almost never like that. Um, it's, yeah, I, I would be comfortable saying it's never like that. And yeah, on it's this, never like that. On this plane of existence, maybe there's one where, you know, where that exists. I'm not aware of it, but, um, well, it's change. I think the point is to just be with yeah. the change, which, you know, I mean, I've, I mean, I like anybody probably is, is struggling with because it's like there's so many things, especially now that are changing so fast and hard to just keep up with how much I was just thinking, like, we're not really meant to take in as much information as we do. <laughs> not so, even close, not even close, you know, yeah. and we don't know how to process it. And then on top of that, we don't really have like media training and we don't have like all these sort of what seem like basic, like, I feel like, uh, you know, whatever they used to teach in the fifties in schools as like, well, what you need to know to be like, you know, a good housewife or like to be like, uh, you know, a good engineer. Like, I feel like now just everybody needs to just have media studies one-on-one right off the bat, 
you know, and like figure out like how to engage um, whatever the onslaught of information that is always largely made to manipulate or made to shift your, you know, your attention on some level. So, yeah. 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 It's pretty hard to develop gratitude in that environment. If you, if you enter into it, at least in my experience, I don't know why they're just at odds. Well, so that's the thing. It's like, you know, essentially the greatest revolutionary force could be gratitude. You know, I mean, it could be, I mean, it's too easy to say, Oh, just love everybody and be nice. You know, it's like, yeah, but, but you know, people that are nice can also be horrible. I mean, so I think it's more like, um, yeah, just developing a space for gratitude. It's like, I always think about all this stuff, especially if I talk to people that don't relate to the idea of meditation or spirituality, I'm just like, it's pushups. It's just, it's yeah, just yeah. heart pushups. It's just, you know, it's just, uh, you know, mind pushups. That's all it is. Um, you know, you don't do pushups, your arms start getting weak, you know, it's just kind of, yeah. <laughs> Taking well, care. That's a good place to, to leave people. But I also want you to kind of, if someone wanted to experience your authentic self via the, the music, where would they start and end? I mean, I'd hate to say Spotify, but, you know. Um, you must. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, the Andre Baum experience is including People People and uh, Beyondre. Um, I think from that, it splinters off into other collaborations and whatever. You can find records on Discogs and you can see videos on youtube and there's all yeah the the octopus of the internet okay um right on trying to think if there are any shows coming up that are local but uh well you never know who's listening you could say any shows coming up all right yeah just around the world list yeah this is a global uh, well, podcast if you're in uruguay yeah. On December 30th and January 4th, I'll be playing. If you're in Buenos Aires on mm-hmm. January 13th and 20th, I'm playing uh, LA, February. So, yeah. Tune in. And they can, they can find that information on a website or Instagram or something? Uh, Instagram, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, you know, part of me is, of course, using Instagram and 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 kind of enjoying the, the interaction of it and being able to, you know, direct to direct a friend, direct a fan, direct to audience, whatever is extraordinary. On the other hand, it's all, you know, on meta servers oh, yeah. to the, to the oh, point yeah. where like even the algorithm is picking up on, I think like even emails that I'm sending to people that have supposedly nothing to do with meta, which is also sort of blowing my mind but anyway instagram is certainly the place that i would <laughs> be promoting any of these things at the moment right on yeah all right let's try to connect yeah please man it's a pleasure to catch up again for sure have a good day you too Ciao. peace Thanks. music by dora bavarsky and mingja chen next up we have matthew caulfield enjoy your week <laughs>